Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agricultural literacy discussion. This podcast is brought to you by New York Agriculture in the Classroom and the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture. And we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. Hi, it's Katie Carpenter from New York Agriculture in the Classroom. And today we are digging into entrepreneurship and agriculture. I love learning how an idea was born and how that idea grew into a recognizable national brand. With every entrepreneur story, there are triumphs, struggles, and an underlying theme of resiliency and creativity that I find incredibly inspiring. My two guests today have put their own creativity into motion. First, you'll meet James Munn, who had a thriving career in the tech industry and traded it in to build his own dairy creamery, working out of an abandoned paper mill. Then you'll meet Jeremiah Best, a fifth grade teacher in a small Adirondack town that is dependent on their winter and summer tourism industries. I hope you will find your own moments of inspiration through their incredible stories. So James, I am really excited to interview you. You have built such an interesting business uh, in a really rural area of New York State and really helped to understand the needs of an area. And I think that this topic and your product was really needed in this time in food and agriculture. So I'd love to just start from the beginning. Uh, you grew up in the town that you run your business in now. Mm-hmm. What was it like growing up in Lewis County and on your grandfather's dairy farm? Yeah, well, great question. I, you know, I, one of the things that always stuck with me is, you know, my, my grandfather ran a small dairy. He wasn't a businessman, and he struggled. When we asked him why he did it, he said, do it for you kids. And the farm became like the hub of my childhood, my life. It just teaches so much, the responsibility, the independence. I think just the fact that we were raised at an early age to have that responsibility to know that the animals depended on you. If you didn't feel good or didn't want to get up that morning, you still had to because they needed to eat. They needed to be taken care of. It really instills a sort of selfless values in you. You know, you don't really think so much about yourself as much. You think about, man, I got to get down there because I, I know that the calves need to be fed. And that was one of the key things I think that really stuck with me throughout my life is that sort of sense of responsibility and sense of serving and and helping others. It was just so encouraging. Uh, That sort of culture was just pervasive in the ag community and the circles that we associated with um, the different family members and neighbors and other folks throughout the county. And it was was such a great environment to, to be raised in. And I think that formed my my uh, personality, my drives, my passions, and for what I would do later in life in those those early years. It wasn't until um, my life got to a point where, you know, I had young kids of my own. My wife and I were working many long hours. Yes, the salary was there. You know, we were um, making good money, but we started to realize that our definition of success was a little different now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be, well, you know, how many commas can we get in our paycheck, you know, kind of thing. It changed. It, it you know, it fundamentally changed. The work you were doing uh, was not in agriculture. Not at all. You were not, not in the agriculture world, nope. the food processing world at all. No, no. I was in um, semiconductor manufacturing. We were uh, designing and manufacturing 
microchips. Um, I like to think that I brought my farmer's work ethic with me. It was uh, very much a um, very different very different industry. Very corporate. Uh, was surrounded by some of the smartest people in the world. I mean, it was a fantastic environment. Very creative. Got to do a lot of different things. And of course, working for a larger company, you have a lot of resources. There's things you can do um, that maybe you couldn't do on your own or in a small business. But I kept coming back to home and success in my in my personal life and being satisfied there. So that's when we sort of had started having the discussion, hey, is this really what the path we want to go down? Because we were both sort of being groomed for sort of that next level of management, which would have come with more money, but it also would have come with more responsibility, less time at home, more time at work. We really, with young kids of our own now, we didn't, we didn't like that, the thought of that. So we, we made the decision that we wanted to kind of move back to Lewis County, mainly because we wanted to make an impact. We realized that's what was missing from our lives, we didn't feel like we were really making an impact, a meaningful impact to the community. And and it was coming at a price too, because we were running ourselves ragged and we didn't feel like we were really getting anything in return for that as far as having that impact. And you were living out of state at the time, you were living uh, yes. in Vermont, That's um, right. but you still felt this pull back to your to your home community and not your wife, Bethany's. Right, she didn't right. come from this area. No, no, no. She, she was a Vermont native and um, also grew up in a, a fairly rural area, small town. My wife would often come with us, you know, obviously when we came back to visit family for holidays and things like that and she really fell in love with this area as well it reminded her a lot of Vermont it was all about um, well, you know eventually getting our way back here to, to really help the community make a difference do what we could um, maybe financially or entrepreneurially to, to help help this area somehow and what was happening in this area at that time where you started to think about this mm-hmm. what was happening in agriculture much like you see today it was um, family farms were struggling um, my grandfather's my grandfather had gone out of business his farm was shut down um, uh, many of our neighbors were, had gotten out of farming it was just the number of farms were dropping at such an alarming rate from my experience as a child I knew that that was that was the lifeblood of this area so if that if those farms are going out of business then that does not bode well for the community as a whole we really felt like there was a sense of urgency there like we had to do something because we didn't want to see the town that I grew up in become part of essentially the Rust Belt, you know, similar to the Rust Belt to the south. After Vermont, we had moved to the kind of the capital region of Albany, you know, around Albany, to see where uh, economic development is really doing well. And then to come here where it was on the kind of going the other direction, it was such a stark contrast that, you you know, if you, if you lived here your whole life, you may not have noticed per se, because it was more of a gradual decline. But with my um, infrequent trips back during you know a few times a year, and but also my experience in other areas that were growing and were booming, contrast was just so stark. And so, uh, I think that's what really added to uh, hey, we got to do something. We got to do something now because it's not getting better. And so we were at a point where that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to do something to help reverse that trend in in whatever little way we could do it. And that has kind of led you to the business that you developed in Black River Valley Natural. And can you tell us a little bit about your business and mm-hmm. why did you decide to go into dairy processing? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great story. Um, you know, when we when we finally made the decision that we wanted to come back here and we wanted to make a difference, we started discussions with the Lewis County Economic Development Office. 
we started with the agencies and we said, what, what can we do? What can we do to help? What is it that we could do um, as either investors or uh, as entrepreneurs? What could we do to help? And I still remember the email um, Eric Verkler had wrote me and said, well, what about dairy? And of course, I immediately went back to the farm. It's like, well, okay, yes. When I was a kid, I grew up on the farm. I understand that. I really liked the idea of dairy, but I knew farming probably wasn't the right approach for me based on my background. It probably wasn't, uh, and my, my, not just my background as a child, but my, my career, right, and the experience I've built in the career, which was mostly uh, manufacturing focused. And, and so we talked about, well, what about value-add dairy processing? So that's okay, so you have the milk now. Now what do you do with it? And, and so that really intrigued me because I could sort of take my manufacturing background apply it to a much different industry, but a lot of the fundamentals were, were the same. You have procurement, you still have logistics, you still have processing and, and personnel, and, and, and there's a lot of sort of generic things that would apply. The content of what you're doing is very different, and so that that's where the learning curve came in. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I like to say I was sort of blissfully unaware of the challenges when I decided, yeah, let's do it. Let's go in in there. Uh, and we jumped in head first. We, we sort of started having these discussions about, okay, what does this look like? And I said from the very beginning that I wanted to be data-driven. I said, let's let the data tell us. And I really think that's important with an entrepreneurial mindset. You can't be biased by what you want to do personally. You have to be focused on what the market wants, what opportunity is out there, what's the customer looking for, what problem do they have that you can help solve. So we reached out to, the, to Clarkson University, the Shipley Center for Innovation. They have a business incubator there. And we made the case, and they decided to take us on as a project. They helped us go through sort of that marketing that market analysis process and say, okay, all right, so we all know that dairy as an industry is struggling, but are there niches, are there pockets in there that we can we can leverage? And so they came back and presented their results to us, and we were very intrigued to see um, certain products that, that do seem to be on an upward trend. And so one of those products was butter. So we, we started building a business plan around producing butter and artisan butters and flavored butters, so kind of a niche product. We like that for a couple different reasons. One is, um, A, the, the trends were going in the right direction from a market perspective. People were spending more on butter. They, they were getting away from some of the other substitutes and realizing that real butter was where it's at. We were starting to grow our market. We were in maybe, I don't know, a dozen stores or so in the kind of capital region. And that's when we decided, yeah, we gotta, we gotta do this now. So we set a deadline for ourselves and this summer um, we wanted to be uh, relocated and, and established in Lewis County. And so we did it. I mean, we, we quit our jobs, we sold our house, moved back. It was, uh, it was a huge leap. I think what my biggest impression was that this, all this energy was already here in Lewis County. There were so many people that wanted to do something like this, that they were just looking for someone to step forward and say, okay, sure, I'll I'll give it a try. When we, my wife and I stepped forward, it was just, we just got carried away with the momentum and it was a great experience. Our initial vision was to build a dairy processing plant that could keep farmers farming. So our goal was not to have our own farm and not to have our own cows. We wanted to purchase milk from local farmers 
at a sustainable price. Now we knew we weren't going to be big enough for a while to support multiple farms, but we could at least start to help them. We set out right from the beginning to say that we're, we were going to work with our farmers and we were going to set a stable price for the year. And it was going to be a set price for the year and then we would reevaluate each year. But um, our goal was to provide some of that stability and for farmers to kind of be able to bank on. I have to admit, you know, we, we sat down and had to work with the local co-ops as well because um, we knew that this had to be a partnership we weren't going to be able to buy all the milk so we had to get permission from the co-ops to allow us to purchase some milk from talk, their members talk about those co-ops a little bit yeah. and, and how that process works mm-hmm. there are members uh, who are the dairy farmers mm-hmm. who sell their milk exclusively to those right. co-ops right. so talk about that relationship a little yeah bit. so this was one of the first hurdles we ran into it did delay us uh, delay our startup for a while because we had to find a way to purchase milk Farm, farmers weren't allowed to sell to outside processors they had with their with their contracts with their co-ops 100% of their milk had to go to the co-op and so for us to come in and try to buy a load of milk was uh, not allowed and and the farm could lose their contract we early on realized we had to come up with a way to to work within the, the existing co-op structure we what we approached the, the local co-op initially they uh, were more than happy to sell milk to me directly but one of the fundamentals of our business plan was to personally vet the individual farms that we were working with so not only did we want to provide a sustainable milk price to the farms. We also wanted to be an advocate for the customers. We wanted to be able to assure customers that they were buying a superior product. And so the co-ops couldn't necessarily assure us that the milk they were selling us came from the specific farms that we would evaluate and vet. I made a sort of a passionate plea to the co-op to allow me to go in and draw milk myself. So we had a refrigerated truck and I got my milk receiver license and I would be able to drive in and duck in right before the bulk truck came in and draw some milk off for myself and and they were and they've been on board and and we've been working together ever since. And so at this point, you've left your jobs. You're mm-hmm. now in Lewis County full-time. And you landed to build your business in an old, abandoned paper mill. That's right. That's so right. can you yeah. talk a little bit about why you chose that site, what benefits it had, and what did you have to do to get that ready to receive that milk that you mm-hmm. were drawing from the farm? So we worked with the county. We looked at many locations throughout the county that, that we could use because we really wanted to find an area that could benefit. We had some land in Lewis County. We could have easily built the facility on our own property and did it that way, but we didn't want to do that. We wanted to be part of a some sort of revitalization project. So we really kind of fell in love with the old paper mill site in Lyons Falls. Not for what it was, but for what it could be, the potential. So this, this paper mill went out of business in 2000. It employed hundreds of people and it was a, a primary um, financial engine for the whole region. And that was devastating when it for that town and for the area when that went out of business. And the, the plant sat vacant for a year. The county eventually stepped in um, and started remediating the site and demolishing the old buildings and basically trying to get that site ready again for more development. And we came in right at that time. From a timing perspective, it was wonderful because one of the buildings that was part of this location was still fairly new at it, and it was really ideally suited for what we were trying to do. So we kind of had a blank slate to work with. It was a large open building. So 
we were really excited about that. So we worked with um, some consultants. We designed our plant, our dream plant, how we wanted it, and we were able to implement it inside that building. So not only do you process your own branded products of butter that you mm -hmm. developed uh, in that process, built relationships with the cooperatives and, and your farmer, uh, but in you're now you're doing milk also, um, but you also co-pack for other mm -hmm. local dairy businesses. Yeah. Uh, can you describe how you made that decision to work with additional farms and what value does your business offer to local dairies? Right, right. I'm glad you brought that up because when we started building this facility, we knew that we wanted it to be a resource for the community. So yes, we were going to use it for our own branded products to produce and, and sell our products. But we also realized that we were investing in quite an asset here that could be leveraged. And so we reached out to the community and there were farmers that approached us and said, I'd like to sell you my milk, but better yet, could I ask you to process my milk for me so then I can sell it on my own farm stand or I could sell it into our local stores that was right in line with what we were trying to do from a mission perspective. So we Because those farms are trying to build the sustainability of their own right. farm for future generations um, yeah. because they were in that price fluctuation. Is that right? That's right. So what ended up happening is a lot of farms, when they started struggling with milk price, they immediately started to think about value-added products, which makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, the cost of investing in a dairy processing facility on your farm is substantial. And so what we wanted to offer to farms is say, well, hold on, before you go and invest all this money in building this facility where, where you don't even have a market yet, you don't know how you're going to sell your products, um, why don't you come in and use our facility, get some products out into the marketplace, start building a market. So then if you do decide to build your own facility, at least you've already have some customers that can buy your products. It was really key to starting this local food movement. And so now you're starting to see more and more local dairy products getting out there. Uh, we can get excitement in the community about local foods, about uh, knowing the farm, driving by the farm every day that you get your milk from. What I'm really seeing in the community is this energy where people are really getting excited now about milk, which now they're really thinking about it. It's they understand now where they know where their milk comes from. They know that there is a difference now. There's well, there's cream line milk. There's you know homogenized milk. You know it's and it's that, really interesting. That was an there. education also yeah. for your consumer, wasn't it? Did your consumers of 2019, 2018, <laughs> did they understand what cream line was? No, it was uh, <laughs> it was a hard sell. I have to initially we had gotten so used to as a as a culture as a community drinking sort of a homogenized uh, milk product and means we're taking the fat cells and we're making them really small so that they're really well distributed through that entire gallon of milk as opposed to a cream line product where you have to shake it. It was a little bit of a, a surprise to a lot of folks. Homogenized milk perhaps isn't as good as for us as we might have originally thought. And so there's this trend in the industry for people wanting to go back to less processing, more of a natural product, and that's what cream line milk is. It's still pasteurized, it's still safe to drink, of course, but it doesn't see those additional processing steps and the standardization. And something else that I find interesting in your in your standards is that technology is important to you. Mm -hmm. So how does technology play a role in agriculture and the farms that you want to partner with? I think that uh, using technology to become more efficient and to, to do more with less essentially is really the key. And as someone from outside of the agricultural industry for most of my professional career up until this point, it's a complete given that you're going to use technology in any other business. 
to become more efficient and more productive. It's a no-brainer. I mean, people don't even question it. Why not in agriculture? There's a, there is somewhat of a stigma there sometimes. And I just don't understand it because it's no different than any other business, right? And so I, I, I wanted to make sure that got into our vision that we, we will embrace responsible use of technology. So being a still relatively new business, you've had some great success. Your maple-flavored milk was selected to be sold at the New York State Fair at the Maple Association booth. Uh, Your products are being sold in local schools for a fundraising capacity. And looking at the map, you have stores that are carrying your product from the shores of Lake Champlain through the Capital Region and as south as Binghamton. What do you consider as your small business's greatest success so far? Really the the connections we've made with our community. I, I am just enamored with the local food community. I'm late to the party, so to speak. I'm new to this to this community, but I am just so impressed with the people that are a part of this. That has been huge to be kind of accepted and welcomed into that community has been a huge uh, success in my mind because, boy, I can't think of a better place to be. And along those same lines, building a business that I can do with my family has been critical. And what does the future hold for your business? What's next? So what's next for me really, I think, is we, we had a couple realizations while we were growing our creamery business is that, hey, if we can get our products out into other places throughout New York State. Can we take other people's products with us? And we started doing that. We started distributing for other people. That was the seed of a a dream to then say, well, can we expand this business into its own food hub? And we started doing more and more deliveries for other customers. And then eventually we were approached by the North Star Food Hub that was based out of Watertown. And since we were already overlapping in many ways, they said, well, are you interested in helping us to grow this business as well? We saw enough synergies to where we said, well, yeah, this does make a lot of sense. As of January 1st, we took over the management of the North Star Food Hub as well. And we're now running a a food hub out of that business. We're growing the creamery. And and we're also moving forward with some grant applications to build and install a a commercial kitchen in our facility. And that's critical because that's going to allow us to do some additional processing of produce. And so what What's happening now is in one location, we've got all the building blocks to help foster and incubate this growing local foods movement. So we'll have the creamery that offers co-manufacturing services. We have the commercial kitchen now that we want to put into place. Other food entrepreneurs and small business owners can come in and rent the space. Then we have, of course, the food hub to help provide for distribution. You know, that's going to allow me to not only... um, grow and manage my own business, but to live vicariously through all these other food entrepreneurs that are going to be coming with all these exciting um, products, I'm sure. I can't even imagine what's going to come in the next few years as, as more people get excited and see what's happening. I think that's a pretty exciting endeavor, and I think your region is lucky to have you as, a, as an entrepreneur in agriculture and food systems. James's drive and underlying sense of service to his home community always leaves me inspired. Plus, his delicious butter and flavored cream-lined milk are staples in my refrigerator. Our next guest with an entrepreneurial spirit is fifth grade teacher Jeremiah Best, and he will share how he is building the next generation of minds that will solve our biggest challenges in agriculture by starting in their little Adirondack town. So Jeremiah, thank you so much for being on our podcast, Outstanding in Their Field. 
Every time I have a chance to talk with you, I am continually inspired by your teaching methods and strong conviction for your work as a teacher. So why don't you first start and tell us about your school and your community that you live in. In a small community in the Adirondacks State Park, which is the largest uh, state park in the nation. And we have about 300 kids, K through 12, and we have about 2,000 residents that are here year-round. We do have a small school, average about 16 to 20 kids. This will be my fifth year teaching at Town of Webb School. And you teach fifth grade? And I teach fifth grade. And have you always taught fifth grade since you've been at Town of Webb? I have since I've been at Town of Webb. I have worked K through 12. Um, and have settled now in fifth. Now, I'm very partial to the Adirondacks myself. It's a beautiful place to live and visit and spend time. Now, and just to really put in perspective the size of the Adirondacks, uh, you talk about how it's the largest state park in the state, but it's larger than a lot of our national parks combined. Yep, so we have over six million acres of private and state land. It's a very special place. At one time, we were known as the land of the great camps. So we had the Roosevelt's and the Rockefellers and the Carnegie's all had camps up here. So it is a very unique place. It's a place that's secluded and get away. There's a lot of conservation, uh, but there's also a lot of opportunities uh, in agriculture with looking at forestry and trout and maple. So we have a lot of great opportunities here. So we know that the Adirondacks and Old Forge in this area is where you landed and also you know your family history here but let's talk a little bit about your path to get to teaching where did it start for you I, I grew up in Memphis Tennessee down on the Mississippi River eventually with my family having lived up here I made my way back I worked in business I was in the fashion industry retail fashion decided to go back and become a doctor then I decided not to be a doctor and realized that my passion was always teaching so I went to SUNY Cortland go Red Dragons went down to Florida and worked in the inner cities in Florida and eventually came home here to the Adirondacks here I So let's backtrack a little bit. So you spent some time in the fashion industry. What did your time there look like? So I started in the back room. Uh, I was landscaping, just trying to make money, landscaping during the day and cleaning up stores at night and eventually worked my way up to um, a more corporate level where I was traveling around the U.S., and opening stores uh, and rehabbing stores and training and decided that it was a great industry to be in, but I needed to be outside. Kind of led me to understanding business and understanding the business side of retail and in fashion, which I've now brought into my classroom. So opening stores, that's a pretty unique skill set. You have to be pretty adaptable, I would think, to a region, to a culture, to the people who are um, going to be uh, training from under you. So what were some of the things, the biggest takeaways you had as uh, working in, in opening new stores? Culture was very different, as you said, in different places, and that was awesome experience. I like to think that in the South, we were very rich in culture uh, with our heritage, and to be able to travel around and experience different culture, but also kind of see the chain when we're talking about agriculture, where our products were coming from, and you know, mark up on products, and to understand that side of it was a great opportunity. It's allowed me to bring some of that into the classroom. It's a really interesting path, and so coming from 
from coming from a more urban area and coming from teaching in the south to a very rural part of New York State, what were, what were some of the differences that you had to had to deal with, or um, maybe opportunities also? First, I had to deal with 20 below when I think the coldest in Memphis might get a week of 20 up, above. But it was, it was definitely different culturally as we come, especially in the Adirondacks. There's been so much changeover from what our culture has been. At one time, we had a lot of innovators and creators. Coming up here has given me a chance to get into the wild and and to experience and and teach my kids about a lot of these things that that are right around them. So why did you decide to teach in the Adirondack Mountains? What makes this region special to you? Why not teach in the Adirondacks? Every season is different. Every day is different. One of our famous sayings is wait five minutes if you don't like the weather it will change and you're able to come to a place that's beautiful it's safe you have great opportunities like skiing and snowmobiling and hiking and camping and you can walk for days and not see another human being and it gives you a chance to have those enlightening moments and to think through the process and take a step back and let let the stress fall off your shoulder and being out here always you're always thinking what's next Where can I go after this? Well, and to have nature and the natural world so accessible to you and your students, that has to be a pretty big benefit for your classroom. We like to think that our classroom is outside the walls of our school, and there are not many places that you could just take a step and head up a mountain. So it's always giving us a chance to experience new opportunities. And as an educator, one of the things I, I saw early on, uh, especially the, working through the gamut of grades, is that the more opportunities our students have and the more things they can experience in life, the more that that classroom content is going to mean something to them. So you're you're hearing less of, why do I have to learn this? You're hearing more of, oh, we just learned this. This is how I can do this. So being here gives my students a chance to do that. Even though your students here are surrounded by some of the most pristine, beautiful pieces of the natural world, they're still just like a lot of other students across the United States and that sometimes it's hard for them to find value in what they have right outside their door. Um, are you seeing that in your students? Yes, yeah, so we're seeing the nature deficit disorder. Our kids are steps from some of the most wild terrain that you can find in the east of the United States and a lot of them don't know how to go into the woods. They don't know how to dig in the soil Um, and so we've really worked on using technology to be able to say hey we don't have to just sit inside and use technology. We can do these awesome things like fly a drone outside and use it to map our next garden plot. Now, just to lay some additional context for um, where you teach in the community you're in, when you first started teaching at Town of Webb, uh, your community was in a mental health crisis. You walked in on your very first day of teaching to this community, uh, and what did that look like through your eyes, your first day? So my first day in the district, we had just lost um, our second alumnus in a couple of years um, to mental health issues. And as a community, we were trying to figure out how to prevent these things. We had mental health specialists come come in. We had a lot of people work hard on trying to offer prevention 
opportunities. But as an elementary, we decided that we needed to be more proactive. And so we needed to create spaces where our students, and not just our students, because we're working hard to make it a community effort, is that for our community, we can offer these innovative opportunities to go out into nature and see the beauty. As we hide away within ourselves or within our homes, we can find that we become isolated. And when we can do things as a community, through agriculture, through entrepreneurship, through STEAM, can go out into nature and see the beauty of life, we've found that our students and our community members become much more open and talking about some of the issues that they might be facing, or it could be a rejuvenating opportunity. Now, you started to do some really tangible things in your classroom. Uh, what were some of the projects that you started um, to try to give your students that purpose and desire to come to school? One of the things that as educators drives us nuts is that we can teach the most beautiful, eloquent, amazing lesson in the history of mankind. And then they come running to your desk saying, I don't know what to do, I don't understand. And you just said, you just showed me. And so what we're finding our kids didn't understand the process of how to get going. A lot of times that process was, have you read the instructions? And through tears, they go back across the classroom and then read the instructions and you hear that echo of, oh. So we wanted our kids to become independent. We started started creating spaces where our kids felt comfortable with making mistakes and not getting things right. We wanted our kids to find grit and we wanted our kids to learn how to work hard and work through problems and re-engineer and engineer and, and just stop and think. So we created our, our community school garden. It was our first project, which we quickly went into growing trout that we used the water to then fertilize our garden. And then through talking about uh, the nitrogen cycle, we started our maple program that we branded with the kids, Sandlot Maple. And we are looking at other big projects, done a pollinator garden. We have some technology that we're looking to bring into our, our programs. We, we do some 3D printing for our garden, so we're, we're using that technology piece, and we're using corn-based plastics, so we talk about biodegradable. So we really made it an opportunity for our students to apply those things in the classroom, and when they're able to apply them, then they want to come to school. I'm so glad you brought that up, because when I've come to visit your classroom before, I think the thing that struck me most was how independent your students were. And it was just another day of class. Even though they had these visitors who were you know, invading their classroom, you sent them off. You really truly were the facilitator in that experience. They were checking the pH. They were checking the nitrates and the nitrites. And then they knew immediately what to do. They went to their Chromebooks and they were inputting their data. And then you said, oh, it's time to go outside to the sugar bush. And they got dressed and they knew where to go and what to do. If our fifth graders, I thought really amazing. I've seen high school classrooms not run like that. So how do you build that sense of independence with your students? From day one, we set the bar high and there is mutual respect in my classroom. And we understand that if we want to do these amazing big things that I have to be able to trust you and you have to show me that I can trust you. By creating that atmosphere, students really take learning in their own hands. In my classroom, there's a little room for shenanigans, but a lot of room for fun. By offering these opportunities, the kids become driven. Um, I've had stories, first day of tapping, where kids couldn't sleep and had their clothes put out the night before and their parents were shocked and said, I have to drag my kid out of bed. And they were up before I was and had breakfast made 
because we were tapping the next day and it's day in and day out is that they want to be able to participate. I think that's what every teacher dreams of hearing, right? right. <laughs> the kids are ready to jump out of bed and come to class. And so that's how I really got to know you. You started participating in our schoolyard sugaring maple contest, which is a contest we run each year across the state. About 100 classrooms submit their syrup uh, and, and photography uh, to be judged by a panel of experts, and they can win some prize money from it. So tell me, why did maple start to become such a centerpiece for you, you and your classroom? So going back to mental health issues and going back to our natural world here, uh, again, 20 below the last couple of nights seen green leaves since September and it's been snow and snow and cold and cold and we start to hit that winter slump we don't want to go outside anymore and we don't want to look at it anymore and it wasn't just another opportunity for my kids to get out and say this is kind of fun my kids are noticing all these things parents are getting involved so we're working hard to try to get to grow our maple industry at one time we had the largest producer in the world not too far from us so we're looking at the economic side that our kids can go on and later on in life start their own maple business and we're working to try to get that equipment here at the school reaching out to different people and trying to build a program we have our first producer um, is coming online this year who was inspired from our program. So it's an opportunity for kids to get out and exercise and be in the fresh air. It, what's really fun is that we're creating it from nothing. So we're welding barrels together and buying all kinds of hotel pans and bits and piecing, which led to our brand, Sandlot Maple, kind of building our program as you would kids playing in the Sandlot growing up. That inspired our brand. We hope to grow, become a more large-scale but always focus on the history of maple, which is important in the science of maple. Came in eighth our first year, um, fourth next year. So we're learning right now in math. We're learning rules to math problems. So by that rule, hopefully we'll be first this year. We will see. Oh, I hope so too. So let's go back a little bit now. What one of the things you said that really struck me is that you want to inspire your students through the, the business side of maple production. What do you mean by that? Our goal is we want to create that million dollar mindset. I want my kids to be financially free by the time they're 18 and leave me. It's a big goal and a big dream and a lot of them won't be able to achieve it, but it, it's learning about those concepts and being able to understand the process which will give them opportunities in their life to chase after what they want to do in life. Find something you love doing in life and learn how to make money in doing it and you will have a rich life. And that's what I want my kids to leave me, knowing is that there are different pathways. You know, it's not point A to point Z but it's point A to one, to B to X, to three, to Y, to Yellow Brick Road, to then Z. And so to understand that I need to find my way in life and here's how I do it resourcefully. If I can apply my business economic concepts in fifth grade and I can start at fifth grade, then by the time I get to high school and I could have my own business. And then when I want to go to college, I can either pay for my own college or I can continue to grow my business. So you look at some of our greatest economic minds and they didn't follow the same path. Like tubing, we're going to follow whatever path is best for us. And I really think that your students really are surrounded in an area where that could really well foster an entrepreneurial spirit and, and businesses. I mean, if you look through your downtown, um, there's not really, a, there's not a chain restaurant 
restaurant um, in this area. There are a lot of people who are built who have built their own businesses that have withstood the test of time. Um, so there's a lot of inspiration in this area. Yep. yep. So we're a small business community. Um, we do have some large, uh, one or two large uh, businesses, Enchanted Forest Water Safari, where the fun never stops. But we don't don't have a business class in our school. So for our kids uh, right now, I think we will see those things. Our kids are now thinking economically. I have three or four kids who've started maple programs, a student that started a lemonade program, a student who's looking to purchase uh, products and, and then mark them up and sell them them so they're in fifth grade they're looking at markup and percentages they're doing that I just gave them the tools to be able to start thinking that way great story last year with my lemonade stand I had one of the students another parent came and said we tried that that was shut down and my kids went and looked at case law and they brought the case law that said that up to when they're 12 they can have a lemonade stand and that was at the supreme court and they had that court case so if they were ever attempted to shut them down they had that it was a pretty awesome experience that is pretty amazing and along with your with your maple you also have built your extensive school garden and your compost program what do those programs look like you because you really do call your your school garden uh, a school and community garden so how does that function so the the idea especially with the mental health issues that we have is is we want to create community we can be so busy with ourselves that we often lose that mindset when we have more people can grow more and we can get more vested in our community to really be a vested community and to create culture around it is our focus now with that school garden and your compost plus your maple all tied into one um you've really developed a branding strategy so i think that was an interesting process for your students to go through. Could you describe how that relationship started and how um, it developed into your your brands now? We all, always try to do a big project. With our economic, our entrepreneurship philanthropy project, we had a Shark Tank night our first year. This year we're focused more on the philanthropy. And last year's class, we had an opportunity to work with a marketing director um, from Jefferson Community College. And they came in and we went through the whole process of branding we cover marketing in our entrepreneurship program. We went through all these different names, really thinking about who we were, and so the kids got to see that side of it. And so what was their step? Were they actually in the brainstorming sessions? Were they coming up with their own ideas to pitch to the marketing director? How did that work? So the marketing director came in, presented some process to us. We worked through the weeks. It was a three or four week period. We emailed back and forth with the marketing director. We were able to identify identify our brand and what spoke about us. We identified that we started with the resources that we had, which is the awesome part of our program is is we keep building from bits and pieces. Through the process, it opened up many other opportunities. I think that's a pretty neat experience. Most fifth graders do not get a chance to do that type of work. And, And what a cool leg up they have as you are hoping that they develop their own businesses and they can think through, what did that process look like for me in fifth grade when I'm coming up with my name and my logo what is that going to look like now how have you used that that branding since you've uh, created it we've created our own labels Um, we've had our maple go out to uh, superintendent conferences we've used it for marketing we've created uh, little five milliliter jars of maple syrup that we made cute with paraffin wax and sealed it and 
you know, we've really focused on how we represent our, ourselves. Well, and what a beautiful lesson that is. If we're putting all this effort into growing and branding and making our product look the most professional it can be, how do I represent myself to the rest of the world? Right. And they can carry that lesson with them, um, no matter what their path is whether they're going to one of the small shops in town that have known them their entire lives to try to get their product to be sold in their store or if they um, take their journey further outside of the Adirondacks. Right. So what do you feel is your greatest accomplishment as a teacher? To be in the business for seven years now and to have this as a profession. Uh, you often hear when you're in college that most people by the time they're in the fifth year have lost the profession because they have found that it's not what they're interested in doing or they didn't find it to be what they wanted and I can honestly say I've been able to make teaching what I wanted it to be. And what challenges do you feel you still need to overcome um, as you move through your your program and your your extra endeavors and your infusion of food and agriculture? What are those challenges you still have to face? So I think one of the issues that we're we're seeing is that um, resources. You know, we are a public school and so the resources we're always trying to find opportunity and what's next what's next for sandlot maple what is next for uh your maple program your compost your school garden what's next Uh, we'll see where it goes you know we're not afraid to close things down and start something new we'll take that path as long as we can take it and you know, we'd love to get bigger and better, and we have great ideas, but if it's not producing for the kids, you know, we'll, we'll reflect on that and say, okay, this is run its time, and maybe we need to uh, look at growing tomatoes in a zone three and how to do that, or we're always going to have that agriculture focus because it's so important. At the end of the day, if you don't have dirt underneath your fingernails, then you haven't done enough today, so... Be sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding In Their Field Podcast, our website, and our Facebook page. For more information on New York agriculture in the classroom, visit agclassroom.org forward slash NY. Remember to subscribe to Outstanding In Their Field on your favorite podcast streaming service. Visit the show notes to learn more about our guests today and follow their adventures at the creamery and in the classroom. For now, Thanks for listening and stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field.